and I'm going to read chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. Another time he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for, the reason, for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever an evil spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, designated them apostles, and they, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Je Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, the, by the prince of demons he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all of the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone into him to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my brother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We can cover all that, right? This may be one of those sermons that ends just in the middle, and we just pick it up next time. So if the ending isn't thrilling, that could be why. So we're coming back into Mark from a little bit of a break, 
And one of the things we talked about was starting in chapter 1, verse 16, up until chapter 3, verse 7, there's this series of events where Jesus is expressing who he is. There's this identity revelation. It's not all of it. We don't get the full revelation of exactly who he is till the middle of chapter 8. But we're starting to find out who he is. And there are a number of places where he uses the title, the Son of Man, right? We talked about how he uses that in two places, and, and I said, you got to know this passage if you want to have that in its proper context. In Daniel, one of the last prophets before this period of silence of 430 years before Jesus shows up, this passage puts into context who the Son of Man is. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming on the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, that's God Almighty, and was led into his presence. He was given, the Son of Man was given, authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion—still, this is the Son of Man's dominion—his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." And so Jesus shows up and he calls himself the Son of Man. So he, this, they, they lower in the, remember, they lower in the paralytic and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Everybody's like, dude, only God can forgive sins. And he says, oh yeah, well, let me just show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he tells the guy to get up and walk, right? And so some of our friends will come to us and they'll say, well, you know, didn't Jesus, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. That probably isn't referred to divinity. It just probably means son of a human being, that he's part of humanity. That's how son of man is used in the book of Ezekiel, for example. Doesn't, maybe Jesus is just a prophet. Maybe that's what he's trying to tell us. All of our Muslim neighbors would tell us that, for example. Um, but if we pay more close, a closer uh, attention to the context of chapters 1 and 2, we'll find that Jesus uses the title Son of Man to prove that he has the right to forgive offenses against God— that he has the ability to spiritually doctor the most sinful human beings on earth, that he is the groom to which the entire cosmos is the bride, and therefore it doesn't make any sense to be all fasty and spiritual discipline filled in his presence because getting to into his presence is the whole purpose of spiritual disciplines, right? And that the whole question of the Sabbath in which creation, redemption, and identity of all God's people is wrapped up in, yeah, he's the master of that. The Son of Man is master of the Sabbath. Pay a little bit of attention to context and we'll find out that Jesus is using the title Son of Man as applied to himself to point to this character in the book of Daniel, who is God Almighty, who has all of the power of God. He is worshipped as God by all the peoples and his dominion will never end. Got that? So what happens is— oh, yeah— all right, so, so here's what happens. You get to the end of chapter 3, verse 7, and Jesus has spent a little time kind of telling us who he is, right? And then there are five human reactions to Jesus. That's what chapter 3 is. Chapter 3 is the response to the first act. And um, here's, here's what I want to tell you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these five responses Technically, there's six because one is just apathy. Obviously, there were people around who didn't pay any attention to Jesus. But there's five responses in the text here. But here, I want to tell you how we're going to apply them before I tell you about them so that you can listen to this sermon in the present rather than thinking I'm just talking about history. Okay? The first is, you're going to be one of these five things. 
there are five reactions to Jesus, and you are going to be one of these five reactions. You're going to be in one of these five groups. I'm sorry you can't get away from it. Because if you're going to be in the apathy sixth group, you wouldn't be in church. So if you're here, you're in one of these five groups. So you might as well go through today and figure out which one you are. And if you're not in the one you want to be in, you might switch to another one. Right? The second is, as with a lot of things, which of the five you are says more about you than it does about Jesus. All five groups of people thought that how they reacted to them was the proper response to Jesus, and their response ought to show everybody looking on who Jesus really was. But what was really the case, what Mark is saying to us is, no, no, Jesus is the judger, and the way you respond to him tells us more about you than about him, doesn't it? Have you, have you heard this one? There's a guy who goes into the Louvre, and he walks up into that room that the Mona Lisa is in. And he walks up to the Mona Lisa, and there's a guard, you know, there's guards on each side of it now, and there's the, and he, he kind of stand, stands in front of it, and he goes. He's there about three or four minutes, and he goes, no, I don't like it. I don't like it. And he starts to, he starts to walk, walk out of the room, and he starts to walk past the guard. And the guard just can't, he just can't hold it. He says, he says, sir. The paintings in this room, they're no longer being judged. <laughs> they, they sit in judgment on the people who observe them. And you see, that's kind of the point of what Mark is telling us here. People will fall into these five different categories, but it doesn't really show us that Jesus is five different things. Which of these five categories you're in tells you about you and doesn't tell you anything about Jesus. And then the last one is this. If you're already a Christian and you love and are trying to follow Jesus with all that you are, out of gratitude for what he's done for you, let me just tell you this. You're going to get all five of these responses to you. And you need to get ready for that. You need to realize you're not just going to get one response. There's, there are many human responses to Jesus, and the more you look like Jesus— the more you're going to get all five of these responses. Some good and some not good. Now, because I'm the preacher, I'm supposed to do a little Bible teaching too. Um, I want you to observe the structure of this passage. There's five responses, and they kind of bookend. The first response and the fifth response are vicious attacks. And then if you go in one step, responses two and, th and four are kind of misguided Misunderstandings. They're from people who want to be well-meaning towards Jesus, but they're still totally wrong, right? So what we need to take about is, if you're like, well, I'm not antagonistic against Jesus. Okay, so you're not one in five, but you can still be two in four. So pay attention, right? And then the middle one, number three, is a really full faith response. Now, reaction one is that Jesus is a threat to be destroyed. That's the first reaction. Jesus is a threat that needs to be destroyed. And that is, um, let me find out where I am. That uh, comes at the end of verse, you know when he heals the guy on the Sabbath day? And it says that the Pharisees went, went out and plotted with the Herodians how they could kill Jesus. Now, think about that. You've got the Pharisees who have the, the, the religious teaching power. And you've got the Herodians who are the political power in that region. And Jesus comes along and he gives, remember this? A new teaching 
that has authority. You see the problem? He's on, he's, Jesus, just by the very nature of who he is, he's stepping on people's turf. Because the Pharisees are like, dude, we've got the teaching thing covered. Why don't you just go out and sell lollipops or something? Because we've got this whole religious teaching thing. We've got this down. This is our gig. This is kind of our, this is our office space. You're kind of at my water cooler. Could you just please just go step off and Xerox a part of your body in somebody else's copier? I mean, this is our area. You understand? And, and then the Herodians, they're, they're like, all these people are gathering around Jesus. Tons of people. And there's not that many people who live in that area of the country. And Jesus is becoming this sort of charismatic figure. And, you know, they're kind of on the Herod team. And this does not look good in terms of how power could play out. Now, this, this reaction is not the, I think Jesus is wrong reaction. This is, I don't care if Jesus is right or wrong. He's on my turf. Right? And you may have, you may have found that reaction. You may have been in a situation where, um, somebody reacted sort of violently against you, and it, it wasn't because you were wrong. It was because the consequences of you being right were unlivable. Do you understand the difference? Number five is, I think Jesus is wrong, so I'm going to humiliate him. Number one is, I, I, I cannot—no, we, we're not doing this. Now, y- you could say that this is people who— want to curtail freedom of speech, don't want to give freedom of conscience in the political sphere. There's lots of ways in which we can say the washing world has a power issue with things that will flow out of the Christian gospel. There are people who want to sell stuff to us that if we live within our means and if we have thankful hearts and they can't tell us there's a problem with us unless they buy their, we buy what they're selling us, they're not going to make as much money. They have a problem with that, right? They don't like how Jesus is going to form us. But, and that's all true. There's lots of folks out there that will act like the Pharisees and the Herodians. But, he, but here's, I think, the problem we need to deal with. That that's, that's us. That's Christians because, because when Jesus comes along and starts to meddle in the power structure of your personal life, what's your response, right? When I, um, recently, Lexi and I, we get, we, so we get to Wisconsin and we're here like, in five weeks, somebody accidentally hits my junkie car, and a hail just, like, comes and demolishes parts of our house. And so insurance companies just start handing us checks of money, you know? And so our house we're going to fix, but I drive a 99 Saturn, buddy. I'm not putting a penny into that thing. You know what I'm saying? It's just not. And so I hit a check for, like, 800 bucks. I'm like, <laughs> shotgun. And, um, <laughs> And I knew—see, but I have, I have my friend Manohar from India who, he's at Asbury Seminary, and he had $3,200 worth of bills for this semester just to get through, and he's working on his PhD. And I know he's, he's got to get back there to India. He's got to lead these 25 Bible schools that he leads, and he could impact—he could impact a million souls in India between now and the time he dies and the ministry he's got. And he, and he doesn't have anybody to send him any money, and I know Jesus wants my money! You know, I get my little check, and I, I just know Jesus is like, yeah, I need that. I'm going to want that check, Nick. And I'm like, come on. Seriously? Like, what am I going to see 800 bucks? I have three kids, you know? Um, and I, you know, that, so I wanted to have a power problem with Jesus meddling with me. And so it's, you know, we could have our little time here where we could talk about how evil the Democrats are, you know? But the, the problem is, that's not true. <laughs> 
And secondly, the problem is we're the problem. We are the Herodians and the Pharisees. We are the ones where when Jesus comes in and he says, sorry, you can't talk to your wife that way because I've commanded kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So whatever you're trying to get her to do or trying to get her not to ask you to do, you can't do it that way. I have a reaction to that. Do you have a reaction to that? Okay, that's us being number one. I just, I'm be out of time. We're not, we're not even get number two, are we? We just have, we'll have five sermons on the five reactions to Jesus. <laughs> the question is, what do you do when Jesus makes you feel threatened? You see, some of you, you're not, you don't believe in Jesus. You're just, you're not Christians. And so the whole concept gives you this sort of flight or fight or flight mechanism. You're kind of like, I'm either going to fight him or I'm going to run or I'm going to do something because he's not going to hold me. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, but those of us who are believers, we, we, we do not magically get rid of our sinful natures. We do not just stop feeling like we don't want Jesus to meddle. And so the more Jesus gets into our lives, the more he wants to reshape us to be like him, he starts meddling deeper and deeper into the power structures of our lives, which is very uncomfortable. <laughs> and we have this fight-or-flight mechanism with him, and we go, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. Can't we just, can't we just stay where we were last week? We were in a good place last week, remember? You were going to take me to heaven, and I was going to go to church and sort of believe in you, and that's was, that was the plan we were on. I don't want more commitment. Right? But that's what faith is. What faith is, is letting the bridegroom be the groom who restructures the household and the heart and the everything. And so, I don't have a new shotgun. The second is that Jesus is an improving power to be consumed. That's the second reaction to Jesus. Oh man, Jesus can get me something. Just think, I mean, just think, heaven, that sounds good. Heaven sounds good. Now I don't even know if it exists, but if all I have to do is say I believe in him and I go there, if it does, that sounds okay. I'll even go to church five to seven times a year. It's not a problem. Yeah. And I will give all the change in all my pockets. You know? But it, because Jesus is going to give me something. And, and, peop, and, and th this room and churches across America and the world are full of people who have come to receive from Jesus. And that's what this next— this passage says, it says, Jesus withdrew the disciples to a lake and a great multitude— now I've, I've inserted, because I don't think the NIV translates this very well, but the New American Standard and the ESV agree with what I'm saying here, so I'm not just making this up. But Mark says twice that the crowd was huge. He uses the word for big, huge crowd, and then he says really big. <laughs> he, puts, he tacks the word really big onto really big crowd. And so it says this, Jesus withdrew his disciples like in a great multitude from Galilee followed, and they came from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, Jordan, across the, across the Jordan, entire inside. Now, that's everybody, okay? So you know, that's everybody. That's the half-breed semi-Edomite Jews that everybody hates. That's Edomia, right? That's Tyre and Sidon. That's whenever in the prophets, back in the Old Testament, you wanted to pick the, the, like the Las Vegas and New Orleans, like super sinful people, Tyre and Sidon. Just when you hear Tyre and Sidon, just think 
L.A., Las Vegas, right? In the minds of Southern Bible Belt Christians. That's sort of the mentality, okay? Because they are the rich, poor cities that just live it up, yo. And so, sorry, I'm not cool. What can I do? Um, <laughs> and so there are these huge crowds coming from all over the place to Jesus. And so what Jesus has to do is he has to start doing crowd control because they're going to mow him down. I mean, there's hundreds of people from all over the place. A lot of them hate each other. And so he's, he's healed all these people. It says, for he has had healed many. Right? That's why they're coming. So they're pushing forward and they're crowding him. And if you read some other translations, like the English Standard Version. Actually, I think I have that for you. There it is. No, that's not it. I don't have it. Sorry. Um, it says, it says he was afraid they were going to crush him. So what do you do? You get in a boat and you get in eight feet of water. That's what you do. That's the only—it's all you can do. So he said, listen, when we go, these—all these people, they're going to come like crazy ragamuffins after me. They're all going to just be trying to touch me. And you're going to have people with leprosy pressing through a crowd of otherwise healthy people that are just excited that something cool is happening. People with like lesions that pus is spilling out of like— can you imagine? You're at a U2 concert and lepers and people with pus oozing in like distended bowels and like— deformities on their face are pushing through, rubbing against you, trying to get up to touch Bono. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's this rock star healing fest, disgusting, exciting kind of craziness. And Jesus is like, dudes, we're going to need a boat because they're going to, eventually they're going to back us up to the water and we're going down. We're going down. So get, and get a little boat. The, the word that Mark uses is the diminutive word for us. He's like, don't get a big boat. They'll just get it and swamp the stew out of us. You get a, get a little boat that I can be like this. And because it's going to be crazy, you know? And you see, here, here's what this tells us. The crowd was more interested in taking from Jesus than in Jesus' own physical well-being. I mean, Jesus had to do literal, physical, bodyguard-like crowd control so that he wouldn't get killed or hurt or drowned. I mean, think about that. He's like, get a boat. And later on in Mark's house, be like, uh, because um, there's some passages go, you know, he could just speak to more people that way. You get in a boat, you get out, you can just speak to more people. And that's, that's partly true. But that's not the reason this passage gives for it. This passage is very clear why Jesus does it. It's for his own protection. And you see, friends, that's us too. That's you and I too, because we would take from Jesus at his expense. We would do that. And not his expense like he wants to give to us. But we would be ready to use him for our own good. These folks are coming and they're, they are not interested in Jesus' teaching. They are not interested in his agenda. They're not interested in why Jesus is actually there. They are interested in getting healed and seeing something exciting and telling their friends and being at something important. They are not even interested in Jesus' own well-being. And that is one reaction of Jesus. We, and, and listen, it's not a bad thing to be in a bad way and want Jesus to help you. Like, it's not a bad thing to be on the verge of divorce and say, hey, let's go to church. Maybe there'll be some help for us there. Or our kids are buck nuts crazy. Let's put them in youth group and start going to church. Maybe that'll help. Or, 
you know, we're broke and we've been in three business ventures with people who stabbed us in the back. Maybe if we went to church, we'd find some decently honest people who we could work with and it, they wouldn't do that to us. I mean, there, there are lots of relatively self-interested reasons why you could come into the family of Christ or come to Jesus for something that's really for you and that not be inherently bad. Jesus, wa- Jesus apparently wanted to heal these people because he did. Right? The problem was not Jesus didn't want to meet people where they were. The problem was they didn't care about him when they came to get what they were after. Do you see the difference? It's totally fine for you to come and want something from God. But see, God only does that interaction in the context of a relationship. You come to each other as persons, him being the superior one in that relationship, right? And then there's this interaction of love between you, which ends up including the exchange of well-being and things that could create well-being. But if you just come and say, man, I gotta have it, you're essentially, spiritually speaking, and I know that this is allegorizing, but you're essentially just gonna push Jesus out to sea. That's what you're doing. That's what we're doing. And it's not just those bad people who don't believe in Jesus um, or who, who, are hip, who hypocritically believe in Jesus. That's all of us. We all want to, Jesus to give to us more than we want to submit ourselves to whatever his agenda is. Because his gift and not he himself is what our real heart's treasure is when it should be the other way around. Okay, so this is going to be a three-point sermon after all. Let's look at the third one and see if we can do this. The third is, yeah, this will work out well. If we end here and do the other, yeah, this will work out well. Um, The third is that Jesus is redefining and worth following. He's absolutely redefining to who you are and what you are, and he's worth following. This is the response of faith. This is the middle one. This is the high watermark of of this passage. Jesus goes up on a mountain, remember this? He went up on the mountain, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Okay, so he, got, he, he went up on the hill, he said, I want you 12 guys. And they actually, and they, and they had a choice, apparently. You know, it was a, yeah, it was an altar call with pointing, but everybody who got pointed at came forward, okay? And he designated them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out, right? Now, apostle, like pastor, is a word that we've sexied up because we want it to mean something special. But the, the, the word pastor is just an old English word for shepherd that we haven't updated, right? The word pastor just means shepherd. That's all it means. You will look in vain for a place in the Bible where the word pastor exists that couldn't just as easily be translated shepherd and that that's what the Greek word actually means. Just means somebody who cares, who provides for and protects a certain flock of some kind. It's a kind of work, and some people get called to it, i.e. the elders of the church, right? Apostles, same deal. Now, because of these 12 apostles, we got a special category in our head for it. But when they got picked, and he said, you guys are going to be apostles, they were going to be like, we're going to be those guys? (laughs) There was no those guys. There was just Jesus going, uh, I need some guys, kind of a smaller group that are going to kind of be closer and more intimate with who I am and what I'm doing so they can really get it so that I can send them out, right? That's, wh- that's what this is. That's all it is. Apostle just means somebody who's sent. That's it. And so Jesus is basically telling these 12 guys, I, w- I basically want you guys to sign up to, you're going to be, 
in my sort of closer inner circle, and you're going to really get to know my message, and then I'm going to send you away from me out into the world to tell as many people as possible. Okay, that's what we're going to do. Now, one of the things we need to, we need to recognize <clears throat> is um, that these guys were not stupid. Okay? These 12 guys, they weren't stupid. They, they weren't just the sort of guys who'd be like, oh, Jesus is flattering us. It's kind of like when the pastor asks if you'll be an usher. Oh, the pastor asked me, you know. Like if, you, if you're that, some people are just like, uh, no. But some people who are flattered by the pastor talking, like, oh, the pastor asked me to be an usher, so I'm going to be one because the pastor asked me, and he said I, he thought I'd be good at it. Yeah, you can fog a mirror. It's fantastic, you know. And, but that's people get flat, and this is not what's happening here. These guys aren't like, Jesus asked me to be an apostle. I mean, it, the, the, everybody knows what Jesus is like. Jesus is a mendicant. Like, he's a, he doesn't have, he doesn't have a house. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a future that they know of. I mean, th- this guy just goes around healing and teaching, right? And now they're supposed to be like him. I mean, Peter and his brother, they're fishermen. They have a family business. And James and, James and John, too, they've got, they're businessmen. They have a small business. They have—apparently, ser- they're good enough fishermen that they have servants, right? I mean, they're, they're pretty well off. They've got homes. They, they live in a, a decent little town. They've got a pretty good thing going. And, and um, Matthew, the guy who has a tax collector. I mean, he's upwardly mobile and a fairly lucrative— Yeah, I mean, it's deeply immoral, but it's also pretty lucrative. I mean, he's got a Benz around the corner. You know? And then you've got these other guys like, um, like Judas the Zealot, right? He, he's got to give up his political identity— I mean, it's like asking a Republican to stop being a Republican to follow Jesus. They're like, what? You know, or to, I mean, or to go down, you know, like the farmer's market and get one of those people like making fun of everybody else and being like, okay, you got to totally stop doing this to be part of this. And they'd be like, I can, this is my identity. I mean, they wouldn't say that, but it's their identity. That's, I mean, think about Judas the Zealot. His whole identity is politically wrapped up into this extremist ideology of you know, freeing the Jewish people and beating back the Romans. And, and Jesus basically being like, whole different agenda. In fact, one of the things you're going to do is be really good friends with this tax collector guy. <laughs> right? Who's like his blood enemy. You know? I mean, th- I mean think about this. And, and meanwhile, they know there's people plotting to kill him. <laughs> I mean, this is after people are already trying to kill Jesus. He's got to do crowd control so that he doesn't get mobbed and run over and drown. He's going to be in less than a page. He's going to be slandered and every, somebody's, the authority, the people who are important are going to say publicly that he's possessed by Satan and his own family thinks he's crazy. And this is who they're signing up to leave everything to follow. I mean, this is, this is not exactly Executive VP Promotion Day. And so it's really unimportant that we see this, because otherwise we're going to be like, oh, there's Jesus, and he's, he's, you know, he's picking those apostles, and they were the twelve and stuff, and maybe someday we'll save up enough to go to Israel, and we'll go to the churches named after them because they were super. No, no, no. That's not why Mark includes this. Mark includes this because he wants us to recognize that there were some people that were willing to walk away from whatever they had 
to follow a guy who had no earthly future to speak of other than some popularity he may or may not leverage because in a very short time without even knowing everything, they don't even know he's the Messiah yet. They have seen enough that they're willing to trust it. They're willing to make a call and to make a bet that this is the ultimate good for their life. This is the thing that's right. This is the thing that's true. And they make a bet on it and they go for it. And here's what I want to tell you, friends. It is never, ever, 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 ever going to seem expedient to believe in Jesus. If you get it at all. If you want to be sappy and sentimental, we can sing some cute little songs and have some puppies on some slides and we can make you feel all nice and warm about believing in Jesus. And I'll just tell you, 10,000 years into eternity, I think it's going to be pretty sweet. But from the perspective we're going to look at out of our eyes, the days of our life in this broken, fallen, sinful, and selfish planet, it is never, ever going to look particularly expedient to put all the weight of our trust in Jesus. It is always going to require faith. A resolute, serious decision of trust that we are going to walk away from some things and get off certain agendas and plans, put all of the weight of our trust in one source to turn all our attention to him and recognize that we could be the recipient in all, of all five of these reactions and will be the recipient of all five of these reactions because this is right. It's true. He is the one. This is the kingdom of God. He is the risen Savior. He is the Savior of the world. He is the image of the immortal God who existed before the creation of all things, come to redeem a fallen, lost, hopeless people. And this is the only thing I can do with this one momentary life that I've got that's slipping away really fast and somebody could take from me tomorrow. And Jesus is standing there, and I would think he would stand here today, and he would call you like he called these 12 apostles. He said, I'm looking for people who will come, who will come out of this crowd that I am choosing, and he is choosing you by that you can hear the gospel this morning. And he said, come forward and be with me, and I will send you out, and you will go out and you will be a participant in my agenda and you will walk away from many things that are good things for something greater. And I want to know if you are willing to make that step. Are you willing to trust? And that's, this is one of those things. In one sense, if you don't already believe in Jesus, okay, that's for you. But let me, let me just say this. If you believe in Jesus, that's for you. I mean, these guys had been following Jesus a while, Right? he was saying, okay, I want to tell you a little more about what you've gotten yourself into. And every time you hear a little more about what you've gotten yourself into, it's like another altar call for you. It's another faith moment. It's another conversion situation where it's getting pressed in a little deeper. Are you going to make this gut check? Are you going to go this far? Or are you going to have one of these other reactions? Whoa. I'm here to take what you have to give, but I'm not going to give anything more. I've given all, I'm, all I've planned to give this year from my life and heart and wallet and whatever. 
So those are the first three reactions to Jesus. And I think that if we know ourselves at all, we ought to be able to identify with all three of them. And so this morning, would you ask for God's help to throw off the first two out of renewed love and gratitude for who he is? And would you embrace the third again or for the first time with all kinds of hope? Because there's a whole lot more story left here about the one you could be hoping in. There's 13 more chapters and it's a great story and you're going to want to be part of the disciple group. as we go through it and as we live our lives in it. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would you'd make us a people who recognize that you are who you are and how we react to you really just says something about us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to respond to you with gratitude and love, recognizing who you really are. Make us your apostles in this sense, ones who would be with you and that you would send out, that you would, you would draw to live according to your agenda. Help us to put our full and total trust in you and not just little bits of it. And help us to love you as you are instead of how we would make you in our own image. Remake us in yours, Father, instead.